0: I did snap, too, when I actually heard him say, one day I will write songs that people will pray to.
1: There were so many aspects of the Smile album, and the elements, and and all the things that made up the record, that he just, uh, he had to, to just let it go. Because it came at a time when Brian was just really finding it difficult to stay focused. He wasn't getting any enjoyment out of it. It wasn't fulfilling him. It was painful. So uh, we made Smiley smile instead.
2: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Sail Podcast. My name is Wyatt, and I'm speaking to you from my studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Just a few blocks from where I sit now is the Nashville Municipal Auditorium, which opened in 1962. It sits atop the Musician's Hall of Fame, where you can see one of Hal Blaine's studio kits, as well as many other instruments used by the Wrecking Crew in the mid-1960s. It's pretty amazing. Anyway, I walk by there pretty often, and I think of all the great concerts that took place there over the years. Tom Petty, the Jackson Five, the Zombies, the Fifth Dimension, Glenn Campbell and of course the Beach Boys on several occasions. On April 4th, 1968, America's band arrived in Nashville where they were set to kick off their friends tour the following day at this very venue. We flew out on
0: Thursday, April 4th. At least one member of the group later recalled that we had heard that Martin Luther King Jr. was shot before we took off. And then we were told that he had died after we landed.
1: Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion... A shot was fired from across
0: the What I remember was standing on the balcony of our Holiday Inn in Nashville and watching the troops massing down the street. In fact, 4,000 Tennessee National Guardsmen were deployed after the police received reports of looting. Marches and protests, some violent, broke out all over the country. And over the next several days, more than 100 cities convulsed in riots, while 55,000 troops were summoned to try to restore order. I felt numb more than anything else. If you lived through President Kennedy's assassination, you can't really be shocked by the mindless killing of another American leader. If any country was in need of spiritual regeneration, it was
2: surely ours. Well, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? This was over 50 years ago. And yeah, things are very different now, but it's clear that we're still dealing with a lot of the same issues racism and injustice and listen i'm not going to preach to you guys i know this audience is a very compassionate one and a very kind one but this weighs so heavy on my mind not only now but every day for so many people the civil rights movement was an inconvenience something they couldn't be bothered with because it didn't apply to them and don't let the message get lost in politics it's a human rights issue and it won't go away until we acknowledge that and I'm happy to disagree with you on many things, but this is not one of them. So let's take care of each other. If you have a voice, consider using it. If you have money, consider donating it. If you have friends, coworkers, or neighbors that are struggling, consider listening to them. And if you need someone to talk to, please reach out to me. It's been a crazy year, and I know things are not great for a lot of people. Hell, I'm still on unemployment. Trust me, it's been a doozy, but I really believe the world is a reflection of what we put into it. So let's stay the course. I'm going to continue to spread love and mercy as best I can.
3: Hi, this is Brian Wilson, everyone. I just want you guys to know that we're all in this together.
2: Thank you guys for that. Now, let's celebrate some good news. On June 26th, Omnivore will release Van Dyke Park's and Brian Wilson's Orange Crate Art in a deluxe edition, commemorating 25 years since the original release. The remastered set will feature bonus tracks as well as instrumentals of all 11 tracks. I pre-ordered the two LP set myself and I cannot wait to get it. So as we suspected, the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson have canceled a lot of their summer tour dates, but they are planning to resume gigs in the fall So check out the websites for rescheduled performance dates. A couple weeks ago, Mike Love released his pandemic song, which is called This Too Shall Pass, and he's donating all the proceeds to Feeding America. Mike told Rolling Stone, I was thinking so many people are going through some stuff, so I sat down and started writing a poem about it. It's available wherever you listen to music. Alright, before we get back into SMILE, I wanted to catch up on some emails. This first one is from Elliot Courier. One, two, three, four. My name is Elliot, and while I've only been listening to you guys for just about a month now, I'm already caught up to Pet Sounds Part 4, which I'm listening to on the way to work today. Given that I'm only 19, I suppose this puts me way on the younger end of people that I've heard right in so far. I've heard about you guys from the talk in both the Beach Boys subreddit and, of course, the Beach Boys Discord. Anyway, I want to write in and tell you guys a really silly but life-changing story about me and the band. The Beach Boys and Brian Wilson were the first musical act I remember listening to. I had a cassette player at like four years old that someone handed down to me, alongside both Pet Sounds and Endless Summer. And I guess that makes Pet Sounds the first album I ever listened to. Wow. (laughs) It's all downhill from there, Elliot. Anyway... As I got older, and continued listening obsessively to music, Pet Sound stayed with me. I've listened to it nightly, weekly, whatever, over the years. I've got to be around four or five hundred listens at this point. But what really started to gather my attention was the sadly similar stories between the young Brian and myself, part of what makes him my hero, and something called Smile. I began reading obsessively about Smile around 10 or 11 years old, around when I started seriously digging harder into the music and I knew that as soon as I touched Smile, I might find the only music out there to match pet sounds for me. So I made a promise. I would wait until the night I graduated high school to finally dive in. I was never a good student despite being a smart kid. So this was silly enough my incentive to finish up school. That night, June 1st, 2018, would be a muggy hot night in my Boston apartment. But it was the night I finally got alone and listened to the Smile album Brian did in 2004 and then the smile sessions box in full. Within the first five seconds of our prayer, I was in tears. By heroes and villains, I was admittedly hysterical. I had waited so long and finally had smile in my ears. It is unquestionably the closest to true happiness and bliss I've ever felt. The next six hours or so was pure magic. I felt like I'd tackled a childhood wonder I never got to have. And it would never be the same again. Brian was to play the Lynn Auditorium before he postponed on June 6th, one night before the show. And I honestly, after working through some feelings on that, I couldn't be more proud. Knowing some of what he's gone through, I'm just glad our old friend and idol gets a well-deserved break. In the meantime, I've been digging on his solo stuff more than ever. And if it interests anyone, some friends and I from the Beach Boys Discord are talking about doing a little Love You cover album. Some cool stuff we'll try and actually put out. I wanted to take a quick second to thank you guys for being awesome and making such an out-of-sight show. I unfortunately can't make your show this Sunday. A little too far out from my Boston home. But anytime you guys are a little closer, I'll be there. Thanks for all the good timing, and love and mercy, good vibes, and a whole lot of ding and shortening bread. Elliot. Well, I love that, Elliot. That's my favorite smile story I've heard so far. And um, shout out to the Beach Boys Discord because that's how I found Will and John And uh, another guy that you guys will meet today his name is Steve Bonilla but more on him later next up we've got an email from Evan Toll hello Wyatt I've been listening to your podcast for a while now and I absolutely love it most music podcasts are just two dudes talking in an unstructured way but I like the way you guys keep the conversation nice and tight while cramming so much information into an episode I was introduced to the Beach Boys when I was around six or seven born in 1998 Man, I got the youngsters out today and I remember listening to the hits via endless summer on my first-generation iPod shuffle yes the one that didn't have a screen or the click wheel I later upgraded to an iPod mini and I could actually see the album artwork I was particularly drawn to good vibrations which on my iPod had the smiley smile cover and was fascinated at the artistry of the album design then I went years without listening to the band mostly because family and friends thought it was childish music that everyone grows out of listening It wasn't until around 2016 or 17 that I started listening to them again because of the harmonies. I was a music major at the time and was all about music theory. So songs like Our Prayer, Their Hearts Were Full of Spring, and other acapella arrangements really caught my ear. That sent me down the infamous Beach Boys rabbit hole, and I haven't stopped since. I even went to a free show put on by Mike's band at the LA County Fair in 2017, and that was a concert I'll never forget. But enough about me. I have some interesting information about the Beach Boys that connects my other favorite band, Pink Floyd. During 1967, Pink Floyd was recording their first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, at Abbey Road, in the studio next to where the Beatles were recording Sgt. Peppers. They even got to watch the Beatles record on a few sessions. I believe it was She's Leaving Home. And it is well documented how Pet Sounds influenced Peppers. Roger Waters often tells a story that the band was driving in a van, and when the Sgt. Pepper album came out, It played on the radio, and they pulled over to the side of the road to listen to it. We're completely blown away. I know that's a weak connection, but there is a stronger connection that happens in 1979. The Pink Floyd were recording The Wall, and Roger Waters actually booked the Beach Boys to go sing backing vocals on the songs. The show must go on, and possibly waiting for the worms. But for an unconfirmed reason, the group canceled participating in the session. Waters said that the Beach Boys had to go record something for their own album, possibly the Light album. But interestingly enough, Bruce broke off with the Beach Boys and helped lay down some backing vocal tracks for the album. So it's official, there is a member of the Beach Boys on a Pink Floyd album. Most people probably wouldn't associate these two bands together, but hey, I love them both. What are your favorite Floyd albums or tracks? Thanks for reading, Evan. Thank you for writing, Evan. I, um, I really do dig... Um, Dark Side of the Moon. I know that's kind of a cop-out, but it is a really cool conceptual album um, that has some really awesome breakthrough recording techniques on it. I haven't gotten too deep into the catalog, but um, you should make me a playlist. How about that? Okay, last up, we have Chris. Hello from Milwaukee. I just discovered your podcast, and I love it. I'm a lifelong music geek, and a big part of that is my obsessive interest in the Beach Boys. I knew the hits as a kid, and they proved to be my gateway drug. I thought if I liked Help Me Rhonda, what else was there waiting for me to discover? I started with the early albums up to Pet Sounds, and got into Smile and trading tapes with my fellow fans in the earlier days of the internet. From there, it was an easy step to get into the post-Smile stuff, which to this day is my favorite era, Smiley Smile up to Holland. Since those days in the mid-90s, I've read every book and watched every movie and documentary I can get my hands on. I've spent way too many hours digging through dusty crates of records trying to find a better vinyl copy of Friends than I already had. I was quote-unquote entertaining my girlfriend with some of my Beach Boys trivia the other day, and she told me I should do something with the vast catalog of trivia in my head. She suggested a podcast, and I said, I figured somebody already was doing one, which led me to look, and I found yours. I'm only through the first few episodes, but I really enjoy it. I'm finding a few things I didn't know and really just love hearing some fellow fans expressing their deep love for the band and their music through the effort put into the podcast. I don't know if you guys have touched on any of this yet, but I've always been fascinated with the stuff in the vault. It's a combination of lost classics and then just really weird music and some really awful stuff too. I mean, Brian's version of Drip Drop, wow. Wow. I hope there will be an episode or two at some point discussing some of the lost music. Thanks for doing it. I can't wait to listen to the rest of the episodes. Chris and Milwaukee. Ah, yes. Well, of course, we are going to cover everything. Chris, thank you for asking. And if you haven't heard Drip Drop out there, you are in for a treat. In our first Smile episode, we flew over the mysterious forest with our fearless guides. But it's now time to put our feet on the ground and begin exploring the individual studio sessions. These tapes have left trails of breadcrumbs that intertwine, collide, and sometimes go straight off a cliff. But I'm going to do my best to lead us all to safety. Whatever that is. Starting today with Brian's first new batch of songs. What he referred to as Dumb Angel.
1: Make it, uh, we'll call it Wind Chime
2: to Take One. August 3rd, 1966. At 10 a.m., go, Gold Star Studio A. Amidst the numerous sessions for Good Vibrations, Brian started recording a new song called Wind Chimes. That's Don Randy laying down a bed of Celeste on the opening verse, accompanied by Al DeLore on harpsichord and Lyle Ritz on upright bass. Frank Cap keeps time with some claves, as well as some subtle tinkling of actual wind chimes. Hal Blaine jumps in on the drums as Carl Wilson doubles Lyle with his electric Fender bass for a short break between verse one and two. We hear Larry Nechtel on grand piano, doubling the bass line with his left hand for the second verse, and Hal joins in with the drum fills. Then the full band is in for the chorus. In what is basically the verse progression, in reverse, we hear Don Randy reach over to the tack piano, hammering eighths, along with Al DeLore, creating that wall of sound. The basses are now joined by Sam Glenn Jr. and Jay Migliori on tenor and barry sax.
1: Sounds a little bit uh, push. Okay. I'd like uh, Sam back just a little bit more. That'll be fine. Okay. The clarinets, can I hear them, please?
2: We also hear a counter melody on two unison clarinets played by Bill Green and Jim Horn.
1: All four please.
2: All four. Right. Mm-hmm. Ding a ding ding a ding 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 ding-ding. At first they tracked the song as a whole. Seven takes were attempted before Brian started going back through the song in fragments to perfect each section.
1: Okay, it's, it's getting very tight now and it's starting to really sound good. So I'd like to just take it from the piano building if I could. All the way through, please. We'll take it from the piano out. Is that good enough? OK, you know, you're going to do the regular bass run. Doo And the rest of them will go ba 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 a second But we weren't listening to what going on. Are
2: we ready for pickup? take five, Cal? The first bridge section is in the form of a round that builds using the same chords as the chorus. Round one, grand piano. Round two, add tack piano. Round three, add harpsichord, tack piano goes up an octave, grand piano goes down an octave. And on round four, grand piano and tack piano move down another octave. And then we're back for another full chorus. Then we have the second bridge over the same chords, but now with an alternate bass line with Lyle and Carl, plus Carol doubling on the 12 string, and no woodwinds or drums. And then a simple outro based on the chorus. The master take would have been an edit of take 9 of the verses and choruses, piano insert take 6, pickup take 5, and ending take 4, but due to an edit we'll get to in a later episode, most of this is destroyed and we won't be able to hear it anywhere. The start of Take 9, however, along with other earlier takes, can be heard on Wind Chimes Version 1 on the Smile Box. And there is a link to my playlist in the show notes. So this is a good time to bring in Steve Bonilla. He's a former music industry executive who lived in California for a long time, and he's now located in New York. And he had some really interesting things to say about where Brian was getting these new ideas. Something he'd
3: been working on since at least Salt Lake City, was the use of the five in the
2: bass. Yeah.
3: And he he's, he then started to do it a little, even a little bit on Sloop John B. There's some few little fleeting sections with the five in the bass and pet sounds. There's, there's, there's that feel. So you yep, have that, sure. and then you have this from the f- the the, f- the five note to the sixth note, and, and also the chromatic. Dum 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 dum. Right. It's used in oh God really all over. Smile, and you know into uh, can't wait too long. You know that's that song is built on that figure, and so you know I, that's sort of been I've held that in the back of my mind, looking for looking for the source, and I haven't found an exact source for it. But I mentioned Tweedledee and its relationship to uh, Cool Water, but Tweedledee has that dum 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 It's a fast version of that, and I don't think that that's... The- I think there are other examples of that sort of uh, accompaniment, that little riffy thing that you hear. Yeah, right. Uh, and it's usually not in the bass, so that's kind of a little innovation of his, it's like, well, shoot, I'm just going to put the five in the bass now. I don't care.
2: Let's now go to August 12th at Western Studio 3. Brian begins by saying, we have no title. The AFM contract also reflects this.
1: We have no title.
2: But on the track sheet and tape box, the song is referred to simply as Look. We begin with an introduction by Al Delore on a verbed-out grand piano, as well as Barney Kessel on electric 12-string, and Ray Pullman on bass. Then high above, we hear a muted trumpet played by Roy Caton. He's joined by Dick Hyde on tuba and Bill Pittman on the six string bass. Then abruptly we are slammed into the chorus. Hal Blaine and Frank Capp on drums and tambourine. Lyle Ritz fills out the bass trio on his upright. And Larry Nectel laying down eighth notes on the harpsichord. Everything really meshes into this huge chugging wall of sound before we are launched into what Brian considered the kiddie part. Bases drop out, and Frank Capp plays a childlike melody on the glockenspiel. You probably recognize from Good Vibrations, but it originated here. Then the first bridge is an eerie Baroque-esque variation on the intro section with a darker chord progression and a very nice French horn counter melody. Then we're back into another chorus and another verse then a bizarre four-bar interlude that samples 12th Street Rag by Uday L. Bowman. Brian apparently didn't realize this was copyrighted material. Someone called him out. He said, That's all right. I'll pay for it. You know I don't steal. There's another chorus, another 12-street rag, and then the end of the song, which is a fade variation of the verse. Take 20 was the master.
1: All right, thank you, man. That's okay. Thanks for stopping it, Larry. It's all right. It's groovy. I wanted to
2: start anyway. Brian wasn't happy with the chorus arrangement so far, so he took the musicians through a series of pickups, replacing each chorus one by one with no percussion, just piano, harpsichord, 12-string guitar, and the bass trio. The second 12th Street rag section was replaced with Hal sticking around for the Tom fills. Brian then edited the pickup sections into Take 20, made a mono reference mix, and called it a day. Here's Steve Bonilla.
3: The first section is a three-bar phrase, and so that... that I'm going like, wait a minute, he doesn't write in three-bar phrases. So the first, you know, it's a three-bar phrase repeated, and then it goes into a, the regular a two- or four-bar thing, and I'm going like, why is that? You know, and it starts on the seventh of the chord, uh, like this part, right? Right, yeah. And I'm going like, what, why did he do three? And so it was just just seemed mysterious. And then of all things, I'm, I'm going to, I, I started thinking of, wait a minute, that's, that's the, the last cadence of 12th Street Rag without the first bar. And that's something that Brian has used in, in uh-huh. songs like, um, I'd Love Just Wants to See You. That right, is, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think he, he did it in the song Pet Sounds. I think maybe at the end of the song that that progression comes yeah. up. And so that's the way I sort of thought about it, That maybe he just started playing around. Well, what if I start on the second chord and then that turns into, right. sub- yeah. it turns into its own thing. But then all of a sudden, why does it go to E flat? I mean, E major seventh from there. I'm going like, that seems like a really abdru- abrupt thing. It's it's what I, I hear it as the second part of warmth of the sun, you know. Um, so it's something that wasn't foreign to him. That to me was like one of his little innovations back in in nineteen sixty four. That that uh, that key change in the in that uh, verse of warmth of the sun. Uh, to you know, and it's, <laughs> people have sort of marvelled at that those chord changes. And so I okay, this part makes a little more sense. That he's starting in a place that might have been in the middle of something he had done earlier, but now he's just starting there. Okay, then he goes into the nursery rhyme, and that's you know, still a bit. I call it the nursery rhyme section. Um, still a bit of a mystery to me, and it's.
2: Yeah, for sure. It's it's I mean it became it ended up being part of Good Vibrations.
3: Is that the path it took?
2: Yeah, so Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Ba, th- ba, right. Became right. Uh, like very soon after they recorded that. He he inserted that. Oh, into, he snagged it for yeah. good
3: vibrations. Yeah.
2: All right. So Thursday, August twenty fifth, nineteen sixty six. Following a short break from studio work, Brian was back at Western to record the backing track for the latest of his Dumb Angel compositions, a chamber-pop ballad called Wonderful, though at this stage it didn't have any lyrics beyond the title. This time it's a minimalistic arrangement, featuring Brian himself at the harpsichord, with a few additional pieces helping out. It was also a minimalist in structure, five sequential verses, second and fourth, having a slight musical variation, and then out with a short bass riff. No. Oh,
1: I'm sorry, I nodded to let you know that it's coming up. I'm sorry. No, you, in, are you the it. This time? is the top. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'll nod. Uh, one. No, one, two, three. That's the first good
2: part. The bass line in Brian's left hand is deceptive, and it's really difficult to tell what key we're in. Sort of like God Only Knows. Just as soon as we feel comfortable, we are swept back out to sea by the deceptive left-hand bass part. Rinse and repeat. Alan Waite supplies a gently, slightly sloppy sounding trumpet line behind the first, third, and fifth verses. An ascending riff into the second verse cues Lyle Ritz and Larry Nectal on their respective instruments, who are just doubling Brian's left-hand part. Take seven was the one, and then Lyle Ritz finally gets to utilize his jazz ukulele on the second, third, and fifth verses.
3: The bass, the stand-up bass figure, starts on an E, and it goes up in whole tones. And, uh and I'm like, what the hell key is this? You know, what
2: yeah. chord is this? Oh,
3: yeah. You know, you could look at it as like an A, uh, A-flat augmented or something. But it, it just throws you off. I mean, because, you know, they people have asked me, what key is it in? Is it an A-flat, D-flat? And, you know, it's kind of changing keys as it goes along. And I... I really don't have a definitive answer. I don't, I don't know. what you, It's sort of it gets it turned into itself, sort of in a dizzying way, yeah. you know, as far mm-hmm. as keys. And uh, it's funny that baseline that bum 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 bum. Yeah. Is a, is a, is a ragtime figure? I mean, it it's da 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 da. Exactly. I mean, it's that same little ragtime little flair. And I'm just wondering. Was he going to go somewhere with it, right. or it's almost like it's almost or or you could think of it as like a mechanical wind-up thing that it it's been winding down and then it resets itself and starts again. Yep. You know, uh, of course he dropped that idea, too, <laughs> which uh, after the first version. But that's the the smile thing that yeah that you know that that is there. And after that, it was all t- it was tinkering until he re re. Uh, we fashioned it
2: you can hear Dennis in the booth giving feedback having recently returned from tour at one point he mentions Carl is running late because of a big hang-up at home and when he arrives that's when they presumably recorded this next tune one, he gives speeches two, one. This is probably the weirdest song of an already weird batch of songs. We aren't really even sure if the title is He Gives Speeches. Nothing is slated, and this comes as an assumption based on what Brian sings. Notes on the tape box list the contents as Persuasion or Something, so it's likely that Persuasion is the real name of the song. A basic 55-second backing track was laid down by the Wilson brothers. Brian at the same piano used on many of their early recordings, Carl on bass and Dennis on drums. Brian overdubbed a lead vocal, proclaiming, This is gonna be so great. I'm not kidding. It's kind of a silly low voice that we haven't heard Brian sing in before, and it's some really strange lyrics.
1: He gives speeches, but they put him back in bed where he wrote his satire. He gives speeches, always reaches out a lot, led him to discover silken...
2: Brian also overdubbed a harmony vocal, Humby dooby Dumb which is a phrase that would pop in several other spots in the coming months. Carl and Dennis added some subtle ahs and then some fluttering hand claps, and that would round out this strange little session.
3: But he was also into that little, if you take this sort of granular look at that melody. So he had this thing where he was inserting that, like the, like inserting the little heroes and villains harpsichord here and there. And, and I was going, where in the hell did that come from? And one song is a song called Just a Dream. Uh, I think it's Jimmy Clanton, Just a Dream. Mm -hmm. And they use... That's a hook in that song. Oh, yeah. So I'm going... He knew that song. I mean, that was a big hit record. And if he's latching onto these little hooks and then, you know, pulling on it, pulling from his toolbox, you know, and then it, it becomes... It becomes this device. And I think right. what he does is he he plays with it and he develops it and he abstracts it and he's just using it and then it's just it becomes his
2: yeah I mean I noticed a lot of that kind of those little chromatic runs um, that he really didn't didn't use a whole lot before this um, you see like little instances of it on pet sounds and then a couple times here and there um, but yeah on this on this batch of songs there's a lot of that.
3: And I was, it also got me thinking to uh, Rhapsody in Blue. Those little granular, little those those little exactly. chromatic things, that the span of a whole note. I think, consciously or not, he recognizes these things as being those, oh, it's that thing, you know. And it's used in this sort of classical jazz age thing. And then this other thing, it's a New Orleans record, you know and but I can you know so he's 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 seeing if I don't know but he might say oh I see all these applications for that and he's you know he used it and again who can say if those are the two exact places he got it from but to my ears you know those are two of the possible good possibilities
2: September 8th, back at Western. This time for a brand new song Brian calls Holidays. We hear Brian working through the changes with the band before turning the tack piano over to Van Dyke Parks. Remember, it could have been on this very day that Brian asked Van to write lyrics with him. <laughs> That's the first one, two, one, two, three. On the marimbas, we have Gary Cole playing the melody line, and he's accompanied by Gene Estes and Chet Rickard, playing the chordal slapback parts. Again, we've got Dennis behind the drum kit, and brother Carl is on bass. Brian tells the clarinets to make it feel like a Dixieland thing, revealing the track's jazz influence. S. J. Migliori, Jim Horn, Bill Green, and Sam Glenn Jr. Van Dyke's skills would then be enlisted on the slide whistle for an overdub, along with the clarinet section switching to flutes for the verse. The second half of the song starts off with a piano interlude, which some of you guys will know from Brian's 1998 song, Happy Days, and then a fade section featuring intertwining piano and marimba lines. Again, this all sounds familiar because it's the same chord pattern as the Good Vibrations bridge section just recorded days earlier but also because it would serve as the basis for the wind chimes fade out on Smiley Smile. It's unclear where the holiday's title comes from. There were no lyrics written for this song until 2004. The song has a marching band feel to my ear, and there's also that weird bass part on the chorus. I wonder if Steve has any insight on that. What is what is your take on the major seventh and the bass on, on the root? Oh, you know that. what I mean? That's well, so that's, strange that's, to me. That's
3: a mystery, ain't it? There's, there's, <laughs> it's, so, um,
2: it's so like not <laughs> like it's just so not brian to me like it has to come from somewhere like i don't it's know maybe so it's out like there this,
3: <laughs> well there's that one bass line bass note in in pet sounds in the middle of yeah that second chord i think the bass line, the bass note is just like where why is it why is he playing that
2: yeah yeah you know Totally.
3: And and I thought, well, maybe it was just an oversight, but probably not. <laughs> boom, boom. I mean, in a way, that one bass note gives it sort of this, I hate to say, like a dopey thing, like it's an amateur. Like yeah,
2: this guy, right. He knows
3: what he knows how to play, and he's just, and it's all by feel. I know I'm supposed to change notes there, and I don't really know notes from another. I, I mean, that's my feel of it and in the way that you're welcome sort of has that has a real amateurish feel it's almost yeah right salvation army little thing and it's 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 loose but
2: i don't know (laughs) i mean well i honestly like the first time i heard it i thought it was a mistake i thought oh man he's just playing the wrong note here (laughs) like this is definitely meant to be here but why like what's the reason but right uh, like right, the the fifths and sevenths are pleasing and interesting, but this the major seven just it just it's just distracting to me.
3: What's interesting to me is that in um, in whispering whispering wind section with the marimba choir. I mean, that was right. pretty unusual. And where you get marimba choirs are in Mexico, in Oaxaca, uh-huh. and uh, in Chapas, they have these big marimba orchestras. You know, so I mean, I'm going like, okay, so where did that idea to put those together? I mean, one marimba and some piano and some organ, and maybe, but to have marimbas, you know, <laughs> um, it's just another point of wonder for me.
2: We'll touch back with Steve in the future. Um, I already covered a ton of topics with him on the phone. Um, and if you're interested in hearing more from Steve, you can check out our Patreon page, and that is patreon.com slash sale on, where I post a lot of fun bonus content. And I want to thank some of our new patrons, Trevor Pels, Brian Peterson, Peter Richard Adams, Paul Barna, Joe Fiorini, Greg Radicky, Luke Hatcher, Bob McGrath, and Dylan Thompson. I feel like some of you guys have like been on this list more than once, which is cool with me if you want to join and then rejoin or whatever. So, I I'm sorry for reading your name twice, but you know, if you want to get your name read twice, just unsubscribe and then subscribe again. That's cool. I don't care. Um I really appreciate you guys. Um you keep this show advertisement free cuz ads are no fun for anybody. And uh I'm no journalist, man. I'm just doing this for fun. And it it makes it more fun when I know that people are out there. So, thank you guys very much. And uh, I want to close this episode out by bringing in the crew. You know who it is, my boys, Will and John, who put together this sessionography. So what's up, guys? How are you? Pretty good. Alive. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thing. Um, and let's let's get into this dumb angel stuff, because, Will, it was your idea to kind of... Uh, Talk about this pre Van Dyke Parks era of smile, or I guess at the time it was, it was only known as Dumb Angel. Um, and I wanted to ask you about your take, um, both of you guys, on where the name came from, because I've got a couple different ideas. John Stebbins says that it was about an entity that tries to help others but constantly screws up everything it touches, and that um, could have been about Dennis or America or Mankind, uh, which I like. And then um, Peter Ames Carlin said in his book that it was about Brian taking amphetamines and staying up late at night and slowly (laughs) working into the space where the melodies would come to him and he would see these small figures moving through the air and they seemed angelic to him. And uh, he referred to the album as Dumb Angel in their honor. So I'm just curious as to if you guys had heard other reasons or if you think one of those is more plausible.
4: I don't think I'd heard any of them before. Yeah. Uh, I think it's more simple than that. I think you just called it that because it's, you know, you wanted to do a humor album and as well you wanted to do a sort of religious album and it was just a combination of the two. Yeah.
5: (laughs) Uh, I haven't heard anything besides uh, those two that you brought up that I've read before, but I mean, they're all interesting theories. I think it might just be like a combination of them.
2: Yeah, I thought um I, I definitely remember reading the one in, in in catch a wave, but um right. It's definitely interesting hearing John Stebbins take on it. Um and I also thought about the music itself after talking to Steve and how there's so much kind of like childlike rudimentary stuff going on and um nursery rhyme type stuff. Mm. And then I kept coming back to that and thinking about dumb angel. And the music being like this spiritual, angelic thing, sort of like you were alluding to, Will, and then kind of the nature of the the comedy plus kind of the childlike quality of it.
4: It's sort of an extension of pet sounds. It's not, you know, the music's not sort of moody and emotional, but the way pet sounds is. But it's similar, uh, sort of yeah. like, you know, Baroque instrumentation, very echoey, 12-string guitars, yeah. harpsichord, and all of that. It's the same sound, but it's, yeah. if it reminds me a lot of, these. those two songs remind me a lot of In My Childhood. That You Still Believe In Me track. Right. It's that sort of playful, childlike sort of, um, you know, sound. The way all the keyboards
5: interact with each other definitely reminds me of uh, of Pet Sounds and some of those tracks, or at least these, these early Smile tracks. Mm. So I think as, as Smile went on, he just had new ideas, like marimbas and holidays, like we'll talk about, and he decided, you know, later on that he'd redo
4: wind chimes to use that instrumentation but we'll get there later I yeah you got kind yeah. of smaller you got you know on wind chimes and look he's using a whole load of musicians like just as many as they'd used on pet sounds and they're very kind of echoey you get to wonderful and all of a sudden he's just by himself on harpsichord with a few session musicians kind of helping out but everything's still sort of just around Brian's harpsichord that good vibrations organ bridge is it's, it's very minimal it's basically just an organ um, a bass and then some percussion with like a small sort of you know a sort of harmonica line all the, the productions in 1966 through to 1967, it gets kind of progressively smaller over time. So going from that big sort of echoey gold star, wall of sound wind chimes to this very, you know, the stripped down one second version that he did that's just, you know, it's just there's three instruments on most of it with some percussion on top of it. And, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. So another question going along with, you know, um, Brian not having lyrics for this or, you know not really having a collaborator at this point i mean because we'll get it to he gives speeches in a second but like was he planning on writing the lyrics to these songs or was you know i think he was always looking he, for a, i don't know i think he was
4: always <laughs> going to look for a lyricist it's kind of you know that yeah. sounds I, I you know how pat sounds in late 1965 you know he did um trombone dixie um in my childhood what else do you do um you know, Pets Sound's the title track. He was kind of cutting yeah. these tracks and then he got Tony Asher in, and then it sort of started the second sort of phase of the album. Right. This is sort of the same thing but for Smile it's this sort of precursor period where he's cutting tracks just, you know, because he has some chord changes maybe a melody that he likes and he wants to go, on, go in and cut the song but it didn't, it wasn't really, it wasn't, a, you know, a cohesive album yet. It was sort of a precursor to everything else. Um,
2: I'd love to hear a smile with Mike Love lyrics. <laughs> That would be interesting. Yeah. Well, Maybe. I mean, if
5: they're all like good vibrations, great, yeah. that wouldn't be too. bad. I would
2: love to hear it. I mean, I really, I, I think Mike's a great lyricist, and and he can kind of bend and and shape himself into whatever Brian's song um, entails. So I don't know. I think it would be really interesting to hear. And it, it, you know, who knows? I mean, it might have ended up, um, actually coming out because Mike would have stuck with it till the end. You know, right? I
4: don't think the music would have been the same if. Mike had been writing it, though.
2: That's um, true, that's as, true, for sure. And then Steve track. and I talked about that, too. Van Dyke said that he didn't have anything to do with the music, but I think there is an influence there. Yeah, I think Brian um, was
4: definitely running from his ideas, sort of, you know, the, the sort of Americana themes and all of that. I don't think Brian would have gone into they're all Brian's, you know, his arrangements, but I don't think he would have gone into yeah. that direction without Van Dyke's lyrics sort of pushing him there.
2: Right, 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 right.
5: Yeah, I agree. I think at, when he recorded these tracks, he had it in his mind that later on he would, uh, you know, ask Van Dyke Parks or whoever to, to do the lyrics. But at that point, the two of them just had so many other ideas that it just wasn't worth going back to. And that's why they're unfinished. Yeah,
2: I think you're
4: right. Yeah. Um The only other thing I wanted to touch on with Look is nothing yeah. to do with all this stuff. It's just the fact that it, he went and re-recorded the choruses with no percussion at the end of the session, which is so strange. <laughs> it's It's a... Yeah. You just up as the choruses were fine. I don't know why he did that, but you you've got to think that there must have been some vocals planned to you know replace that sort of rhythm section. Um, it's just a it's just a weird sort
2: of anomaly. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about Wonderful. Um, yeah, I mean this version of Wonderful is is probably my favorite track on Smile. Um, I think it's awesome. It's always been um, kind of a mystery to me kind of it's a it's a winding road that that feels like it's just gonna go on forever like it doesn't really have an ending yeah I just so kind of I've of always the, loved that like about stops. it and it's always been kind of a mysterious track to me and I love the the arrangement I love um the trumpet I love the sound of it uh on both this and on um on look I love the the sound of the trumpet on that as well so it's yeah. it's it's something that I've always gravitated towards even before I really understood what Smile was when I first heard this. I don't, I guess it was on the Good Vibrations box. Yeah. Um. um I think it I was, think.
4: I think Darian said that that was one of the big things for him as well, hearing this on the Good Vibrations box. Yeah.
2: Um. And I, yeah, just out of context, I just thought, wow, what a great song. Like, What did this, you know, where did this come from? I feel like, you know,
4: Brian might have been taking a note from For No One from Revolver for this because it's a similar oh, yeah. sort of, you know, it's a similar sort of very concise sort of love song two minutes long sort of sparse Baroque instrumentation. You've got a piano and a harpsichord, then a piano and a clavichord, some sort of brass instrument. You've got a trumpet and then a French horn and the same sort of, you know, very abrupt um, ending where it just sort of comes to a stop out of nowhere. I've got no idea if, you know, Brian never even talks about revolver, but I've got no idea if that's the case or not, but it reminds me a lot of it. Just the, yeah, you know, the just the, the, the form of the song kind of.
2: Yeah, totally. Um, It reminded me a lot of other, I mean, yeah, like Revolver for sure, but like there's a lot of other sort of like um, Baroque pop um, coming out of England at the time. Mm, Yeah. Like, what is oh, The Left Bank, like Walk Away Renee and Pretty Ballerina, which I think came out in December of 66. So it wouldn't have been a direct influence. But, I mean, obviously recorded pretty much at the same time. There was a lot of that going on in pop music, um, with uh like the zombies of course and most notably the Beatles, but a lot of this shift to like French horn and, and sort of this chamber pop feel with with uh the harpsichord and more sparse arrangements. So
5: Yeah. Um, the Beach Boys were kind of one of the first to, to start that that comeback with uh yep. I get around. They had a harpsichord on that even back in nineteen sixty four. Yeah. Which no one really talks about.
2: Um, well, I talked about it, John. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs>
4: you wouldn't even notice it, though, unless somebody told you that there's a harpsichord there.
2: Yeah, I mean, it sounds so much like a think, guitar. Yeah, when
4: I when I grow up, it's probably the first one where you know you can actually yeah. tell. Mm-hmm. I wanted to mention a little something
5: about "Wonderful." Um, you and Steve were talking about how there's a lot of this, like, kind of sloppy, amateurish uh, playing on some of these early tracks. That's obviously intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, So I wanted to talk about the trumpet on this track. Yeah, Uh, it it just plays some easy notes, and then it has that turnaround phrase where it goes da na na na. Yeah, and that's very easy to play on the trumpet. But the way Brian has him do it is like da na na, like he it almost like it sounds exactly like when someone's beginning to learn trumpet a, yeah. and they like can't quite hit the high it notes. It's kind of like a rusty but, door hinge.
4: <laughs> That's the way I yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like someone's voice cracking or yeah, something. It was, but, it was, I mean, it was his version of musical humor.
2: Yeah. And, and also maybe that would be, you guys would know better than me, but why he was using, you know, Dennis and Carl and himself in the studio more. Like maybe yeah. he just felt like it, it fit the musical theme better.
5: Yeah, I've heard some people say that the trumpet is played poorly, not intentionally, but the the way he plays it is the same exact way every time. And I've been told that yeah. to actually make it sound that way intentionally, make it sound like a
4: mistake, is actually really hard to do. Yeah, and the guy Alan Waite, the trumpet player, is a pro. He's a pro musician. He would have, you know, he could do anything. Yeah, exactly. He wanted with a trumpet, so <laughs> it's obviously intentional. Yeah, on, on the wonderful inspiration i've just found that i've got a brian quote about that written down and um, he said on, on a twitter q a in 2015 he said uh, there wasn't any inspiration we just planned to write a song about a girl who lives in a wonderful a, a wonderful place um thanks brian <laughs> <laughs> that's not helpful <laughs>
2: great track um let's talk about uh he gives speeches or persuasion so these lyrics are a mystery me
4: Yeah, me too. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you'd think that they were written by Van Dyke Parks because they just sound very Van Dyke Parks, and then Van Dyke was also credited on "She's Gone" and "She's Gone bald on "Smiley Smile." You'd think because of the silken hairline, which is from speeches, but then, you know, every time Van Dyke's been asked about this, he was like, "Nope, I didn't write any of that," so (laughs) got just no idea.
2: Has anyone? I I know that Brian kind of shut down this track when they were doing "Smile" in two thousand four. I think Darian asked him about it, and he was like, "No, no, no, not that one." Yeah. Um. So maybe this was just some little side thing that he did, and it mo- it may have been a collaboration. I don't know. Jasper Daly could have written these lyrics. Who <laughs> knows? Like, yeah, really. Any of his any of his little cronies could have written those lyrics, and we would, you know,
5: pretty much. Yeah. I'm surprised no one has asked Mike Love about this because he yeah. obviously had heard it to rewrite it as she's yeah, going bald. Soaking Helen. It takes a line from there. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think someone should ask him about that and
2: say, "Yo, did you write these lyrics? Did Brian? <laughs> Who did this?" I'm hesitant to believe that it was Brian just just because of the nature of the lyrics. It just see it just seems like they come from a different place. And he's such yeah. a I don't know. His lyrics are always so kind of matter of fact. Mm. These lyrics are so like strange and right. poetic.
5: And it sounds so much like Van Dyke Parks. Yeah, yeah. There's one thing. Um, just
4: just out of sort of disbelief that he didn't write this. Um, I went on Van Dyke Parks' Twitter and searched through. It's Twitter history for different lyrics. And he used the phrase friendly persuasion like six times over the last few years. So I that's a very Van Dyke <laughs> phrase, I, just, I thought. But
2: Wow. It's, yeah. Yeah, I've got no so idea. So if, I mean, let's say if theoretically, like if theoretically we find out that he did write these lyrics, that changes the timeline a good bit. Yeah, it would. But it's. I think it's more likely that he didn't.
4: Yeah, I've, I feel like it was one of Brian's friends. Um, yeah. Nothing to back that up, but I just... Get that impression
2: yeah it's just interesting it's such a strange lyric and i don't i don't know you know i haven't really heard anybody come up with a good reference point of where these lyrics came from
4: it's just such a bizarre song in general i mean you know it's only yeah at this point he was doing full songs apart from this which is just about you know 50 seconds of the same riff over and over again the line is the same thing as the vocal melody it just repeats itself um sort of just smashing away yeah, the piano it's super strange yeah, it's a really sort of It's not it. It's like something escaped from nineteen sixty three. It reminds me of like Baker Man or something like that. Um.
2: (laughs) Anyway, anything else about that track?
5: Um, I kind of want to mention a little bit um, something that again you and Steve were talking about. Yeah. Um, So on Pet Sounds, I know you mentioned this in one of your episodes that there's kind of this like this motif where a lot of the songs have these falls at the end of the melodies where it goes da na na. Um, but on Smiley kind of transforms that into like a, a chromatic uh fall like like da na yeah like which is uses a more vaudeville
2: that, it, type type thing yeah, yeah. more
5: vaudeville a little creepier yeah, ragtime. so it, that kind of starts with the wind chimes yeah wind chimes baseline um and i mean it's all over this this melody and he's going to just use it so much later on in like heroes and villains which we'll talk about
4: yeah as well another thing as well some people have kind of you know, I've seen some theories that people have said that "Wonderful" and he gives speeches are sort of, you know, it's two perspectives on the same song, which I don't really buy into. But the melody for both is quite similar. The very start of it, sort of. The yeah, it
2: reminds it. me also like this song would have been great on "Love You." Like if he had yeah, redone this, definitely. it would have been great. Like just imagine oh, the totally. synth bass, like and then like Brian playing like snare drum and like I mean, it would have been absolutely perfect. It would have fit so much better than uh good time one of the only things i don't like about love you is that good time is yeah. on there you know i don't know this, uh, the more i listen to this though i'm just like man this would have been great on love you
5: <laughs> i i'd never thought about that before yeah like like the 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 way he just like hits the snare drum on on every beat <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah yeah There's actually there was a, there's an interview from 1976 where brian's talking about how he wants to start writing with Van night parks again so imagine if he did, and this was on Love You. <laughs>
2: oh, man. That's another, like, fantasy Beach Boys album. would be Love You with Van Dyke Park's lyrics. <laughs> oh, That'd my God. So oh, just break break everyone's brain. <laughs> um, Anyway. um, <laughs> Yeah, really interesting. And the Persuasion um, title, like, you know, yeah, where does I think that, that come that, from?
4: I think that might have been the real name, because, you know, there's that, that lyric towards the end, um, Friendly Persuasion, yeah. but on the tape box um there was no title on it originally it was just you know on a comp with wonderful that and the good vibrations bridge and then someone in the 70s when they were sort of cataloguing these wrote wonderful she's gone bald and um keep those love and good vibrations on it and then wrote underneath persuasion or something and then there's like another note underneath that apparently that says persuasion is he gives speeches and so yeah i don't i don't know where that came from but Obviously, someone sort of had second thoughts about that and got it from somewhere.
5: I think maybe "He Gives Speeches" was just a name that that people came up with when the track started getting bootlegged and yeah. I mean, it's like the, it's the first couple words you hear.
4: Yeah, on the on the very first bootlegs, people just called it "She's Gone because they didn't know what it was, and then it sort of picked up that name later on. So
5: yeah, I mean, and this is obviously just like the first part of. Sp- probably some other song I don't know it's only 50 seconds long yeah it's a really strange one you get the
4: impression that it was only going to be a section of a song but there's no other you know there's nothing else of that song that ended up yeah who
5: knows there could have been like a chorus or something that we've never heard but it's a mystery
2: So let's talk about holidays um, because there's a couple interesting things here. First off is the, the kind of um, piano demonstration, right, that Brian does where he's humming a melody. You can kind of discern what's going on, but um, it's really too faint and, and garbled to really tell. But it seems like he at least had the start of a melody for the song. And I don't, I don't think he had lyrics. It sounded like kind of his normal, um, kind of mumble singing. Yeah. There's some
4: people, people have, you know, people have theorized that he sings the word Indians there, but I went and, you know, the other day when I showed you, I sort of used splitter to kind of split the tracks apart and try and hear his voice a little bit better. And he definitely doesn't sing the word Indians. I don't know if he's actually singing words, but it kind of sounds like he goes when Monday is here and then sort of just scats from there. <laughs> maybe it was nothing i don't know but i don't think he sings indians there and i don't think it was a van like box sort of lost lyric
5: yeah me neither or, or else they probably would have remembered it in some way for 2004 mm. instead of completely starting over um i thought it was interesting that once again like he gives speeches there's just this constant quarter note feel on the drums yeah um with then it's just hitting the hi hat and snare just on every beat and Again, it sounds very march-like mm. and yeah, almost kind of jazzy because he has that that clarinet counter melody that kind of swoops up into a note, and the fact that he's using like a bunch of clarinets and he says he wants a Dixieland feel, it almost feels like that kind of uh, that kind of music before, you know, more traditional jazz with the drum kit where they would just like have these uh, these uh, marching players that would play all different kinds of percussion and it. Has a, like I said, more of like a marching band meets jazz meets weird pet sounds <laughs> kind of vibe to
4: it. Yeah, this, it sounds, you know, it's it, this one more than a lot of things, especially with the slide whistle, just sounds like kids' music in a way. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's really kind of like childlike. Yeah, and the and,
2: children's song, the themes that we see in Surfs Up and Child is Father of the Man. Yeah,
4: there's an article that really doesn't go around a lot that I managed to find where he. Cool. He, like he tells the interviewer that these these songs are children's songs basically and he calls them kind of little musicals it's his way of describing them
2: uh, and then there's the outro section which um, ended up in smiley smile and wind chimes um, and also to me like was very similar to the good vibrations um, sort of um, you call it the bridge section yeah, um, the same um progression yeah so it really reminded me of that and i know that he was still working on good vibrations at the time so it was very just like you know he was kind of taking ideas from from look and and throwing them into good vibrations like on a whim it felt like this could have gone the other direction like he was like okay i'm gonna take this idea from good vibrations and put it into this new song or you know uh it, yeah, it just it just seems so similar. It
5: to almost it. sounds like he gives speeches too, although that doesn't have the, the two, but the melody sure, sure. fits over it just as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a thing that, it's again, it's like a very rudimentary thing, like kind of more or less just going from one to five, and it's also a very marching band type thing. Right. Yeah, so more or less, I mean, this was all scrapped and, and they kind of started fresh when Van Dyke came on board. Um, but... It is super interesting on its own. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for taking the time, and thank you for um, all your work putting together um, the sessionography and helping me sort through this stuff. Uh, I know um, all our listeners appreciate it as well.
4: So I think from now on we're gonna start looking at more songs, just like completely, like you know, look at a song and every version of it at once. I just thought it would be a good idea to sort of split this, you know, pre Van Dyke sort of thing off into its own episode because it's so different.
2: Again, I appreciate it. We're, we'll talk to you guys next time. All right. Going up next time.
1: <laughs> I can't play banjo, <laughs> but yeah.
2: <laughs> All right. That will just about do it for today's episode. Huge thanks to Steve Vanilla for joining us, and also to my lovely shipmates, Will and John. And thanks to all of you guys for listening. Send me your smile stories at sailonpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave me a voicemail at 615-606-3887. Thanks to Will C for the awesome tunes. And I hope to get back out there on the road so I can see some of you guys. It's been way too long. I really hope I was able to add some music to your day and bring some joy. Until next time, be kind to each other. And sail on, sailors.
1: Foot, son of a bitch put <laughs> strawberry jam